This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Wrangle.io. Wrangle's been working with Angular 2 for a long time. And they are now putting together an eight-hour, two-day course designed to help Angular developers learn how to write apps in Angular 2. If you're looking to level up your JavaScript and Angular 2 skills, then go to ringle.io slash training and click on the link for Angular 2 training. If you're looking for other training in React or JavaScript, they also have that available at ringle.io slash training. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh! Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to try debugging issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install, and you can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. We have a special offer for JavaScript Jabber listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber and sign up to get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked for free. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 223 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, quickly shouting out about reactremoteconf.com and angularremoteconf.com. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that is Dennis Ushakov. I hope I said that somewhat close to accurately. Yes, that's close. Hi, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yes, uh, I'm working at JetBrains as a team lead for uh, WebStorm and RubyMine teams. Uh, I've been working at JetBrains for almost eight years. And uh, I usually say that my work at JetBrains is to make the release process converge. Awesome. Yeah, we met at ng-conf and yes. had a little chat there and uh yeah i was really interested to just find out like what goes into webstorm and uh yeah how all that gets released and things like that one thing that i think is interesting just to kind of get us started is that webstorm among other things is written in java if i remember right yes that's true so what's it like writing an ide for javascript in java 
Actually, we've been writing Java ID in Java for quite a long time. So IntelliJ makes writing Java code less painful than like other IDEs or uh, even text editors. Uh, so yeah, but we are not very proficient in JavaScript usually. So what we do is read specs a lot and we have uh, different dog footing projects. And also we have a front-end team who are doing the our web-based tools such as Utrack, TeamCity, uh, who give us really, really good feedback. Okay, that makes sense. So when you say you look at the specs, are you looking at the ECMAScript 5 and ECMAScript 6 or ECRM ES 2015? You looking at those and are you implementing the upcoming versions of JavaScript or is it just the kind of the current implemented spec? Uh, we are following the upcoming specs, so there are things that are not on the official spec that are already working, and we are trying to keep up with the new stuff. Because uh, if, uh, when you uh, do things, uh, uh, I don't know, if it's right to say reactive way, when spec is getting released and then you're pushing the features, it's usually too late in the JavaScript world because Babel supports all the things and with some extensions and uh, lots of people are already using new stuff. So I have, a, I have a couple kind of background questions. Yeah. One is, can you just kind of define what WebStorm is for people that might not have used it? Yes, sure. WebStorm is a JavaScript IDE and IDE stands for Integrated Devel Development Environment. Uh, so basically, it's a text editor uh, with the advanced code inside, such as uh, completion, navigation, refactorings, plus integration with the different tools, uh, such as debuggers or linters or build tools and stuff like that. And then you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I often hear about this dichotomy between an IDE and a text editor. And, and WebStorm, in my mind, is definitely on the far end of the IDE spectrum. It's it's kind of a choice that you've made pretty deliberately. Can you talk about that difference? Like what makes up an IDE versus what makes up a text editor? Basically, we are uh, okay living with the text editors. And uh, what are the benefits of using text editor is that it's uh, usually faster and simpler. Uh, but so this is stuff like Vim or... Yeah, yeah, for example. Vim Sublime or, or I don't know, things like that. Yes, but it doesn't have uh, lots of functionality. So, for example, you cannot refactor or uh, with some plugins you can refactor, but you need to configure them manually. And uh, it's usually a little bit harder than in IDE where you have all, everything baked in. Another thing is that uh, you have uh, some tools integrated. So, for example, if you are doing something in the text editor, usually you need to switch to the terminal to do, I don't know, to, to launch a build tool or stuff like that. Or uh, you need to switch to the browser to do the debugging. And uh, in IDE, you just get the debugger right where your code is and uh, you get all the tools built in. Yeah, I, I would have to say, I mean, I use Emacs a lot and then occasionally I'll pull out uh, RubyMine or WebStorm. And yeah, my experience is, is that if I don't want to do any of the setup, IDEs are really nice. But for something like Emacs in particular, I actually have to go out of my way to make sure that the environment is set up 
so that it does all the stuff that the IDEs sort of do naturally. That's true. Uh, there's also another way that I believe quite a lot of people are using. When they need to do some quick fixes, like edit a line or two, they are opening the text editor because it's usually faster. But uh, when they need to do some refactoring, they are pulling out an ID to get all the difficult stuff done. I can kind of see that. One thing that I'm curious about is that a lot of the tools that I find I wind up using for JavaScript for building and things like that are all written in JavaScript. So when you're building an IDE for JavaScript, do you wind up just hooking into those tools when you provide those services? So there's a JavaScript runtime that you're talking to from the Java built IDE, or do you actually build that in Java and make it a part of the IDE? There are different approaches, so we are using kind of both of them. Uh, so with some tools, uh, it's enough to just launch the tool, grab the output, and that's fine. Uh, with some tools, you need to talk using some protocol. Uh, for example, that's what we are doing right now in the early access versions. We are building in the uh, TypeScript uh, language service and we are talking using the Microsoft protocol to get all the highlighting for, for the TypeScript. And sometimes we, we just do things ourselves. So for example, for JavaScript, we have our own code inside engine that parses the JavaScript, infers the types and tries to provide the completion navigation and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit more about the technical kind of architecture and, and things that go into building an IDE? To me, it seems kind of magical and mysterious. I don't know anything about how they work under the hood. Like there's the whole text editing part, but then there's all this other stuff that you've mentioned, like talking to external frameworks or libraries and doing JavaScript parsing and like what, what all is involved in the technical aspects of the IDE? Yeah, it's funny because usually that's what I'm saying at the interviews uh, when I'm interviewing the new people and I'm saying what the kind of work they're going to do here. So there are two kinds of integrations. Uh, the first one is language support and the second one is external tool support. So we kind of covered a little bit the external tools. Uh, you just launch, you grab the output, you're trying to provide some useful useful actions for uh, simplified launching or getting some navigation from the output or some information from the output. Like, for example, if you're launching the test framework, you provide the formatter, you grab the output, and then you can provide a nice-looking tree uh, with the test lists and showing which are failing and which are okay and navigation from that tree. As for uh, language support, everything starts with, uh, with a lexer. To provide some basic highlighting, you need to write your own lexer. We are using the JFlex for that. And uh, lexer is just the thing that splits the like input stream of file into the tokens that are getting highlighted after that. So if you want just the highlighting, you can stop at the, lexer, at the lexer. After that, if you want to do some refactorings and stuff like that, first thing that you need to do is to get the token stream converted into the actual tree structure. That's uh, what usually called the AST, uh, an abstract syntax tree. And the parser goes through the stream of lexers and it tries to combine them into the nodes 
which represent some objects. So, for example, if you have a function declaration, you get the couple of tokens, for example, one for a, for a function keyword, this second for a, for a brace, and one more, and then for curlies. And actually, that would be one big node that's called the function, and uh, inside it would be arguments list and there would be a body and there would be statements and stuff like that. Usually the AST is uh, like the node and it has the type. What we do is we have a thing that's called PSI, Program Structure Interface. It's uh, basically an object-oriented AST. So usually you are going through nodes and you're asking node which type it has and doing something on top of that and decide something based on the type of node. With PSI, every node is just an object and you can ask something like function, give me a name. So it sounds like from the work you're describing, it, it sounds a lot like what the actual compiler or VM yes, or engine would do itself. Yes, that's true. Um, are, are you able to reuse, I, I know you do this for a bunch of different languages, but especially for JavaScript, there's a ton of tooling around parsing JavaScript in JavaScript or in other languages. Are you able to reuse any of that or even any of the code from any of the VMs? Or is it really just implementing everything from scratch yourselves? Actually, we started doing the JavaScript parsing very, very long ago uh, when there were almost no such tools and it was kind of hard to do actual parsing. Mm -hmm. uh, so for JavaScript, we are doing everything from scratch and for most languages, that's what we do. So we usually look at specs, as I said at the beginning, and uh, we look at the actual compilers or VEMs code, because, for example, for uh, Ruby, there is no actual spec. Sure. Uh, and that's what we do. We, we are looking at the Ruby source code, and we are trying to understand how it really parses the input file. So it sounds like you feel like you need to kind of do it all yourself because often you're building it ahead of usable tooling almost from, from other people. Like you, you want the highlighting for the new features before having to wait for some open source library to parse the new feature correctly or something. Yes, that's true. And uh, the other problem that we actually need to do that fast and uh, we need to do that in some incremental way and not all the libraries and not all the compilers can do that in, in that way. Okay, that kind of makes sense. So uh, we uh, we used to write parsers uh, manually using the recursive parsing, uh, but recently we we did our own thing that's called Grammar Kit that allows you to provide the BNF and uh, then generate parser. One thing that I'm curious about, you know, you talked about having to implement some of these features on your own in JavaScript because nobody's done it. It's kind of in limbo because the spec hasn't been adopted yet. How do you decide which ones you're going to build first? That's a really, really good question. First of all, we, we have our uh, bug tracker and our bug tracker is uh, open. So everyone can contribute, everyone can comment on issues and uh, vote for issues. So we are uh, trying to see what uh, people are actually using and what people are asking us to do, and we're paying attention to the votes. 
We are uh, also uh, trying to uh, look at the trends uh, in the community and articles and uh, GitHub repositories. And uh, if we are speaking about frameworks, we can see the, the popularity of the frameworks. And we also have our own research team. We can ask them questions. So to do some research and uh they actually uh, built a pretty good tool recently that gathers the stuff from the Stack Overflow questions and from GitHub and from oh, wow. Google Trends. And basically, you can see which frameworks are getting popular and uh, which are That's not. That's a really cool idea. So someone yeah, is, so. is crawling and parsing all that to try and yeah, make decisions yeah. about what to implement. That's really cool. Uh, the only thing that's missing, but I think they will add it uh, sometime, is the NPM stats. So we are checking the NPM stats menu right now, but I guess we can add them there. Is that data set or tool open? Like, is that something that other people could use, or is that an internal thing? Uh, it's kind of internal thing. Uh, I don't know uh, if it's really production ready and ready for... Sure. It just sounds like it could be really fascinating. So I have, I guess, kind of a broader question, which I I hear sometimes from people. It it seems like it applies to any kind of text editor IDE setup that you spend a lot of time customizing and tweaking, which is why is that tooling important? Like the, the bottleneck for most programming seems like it's in your brain. And the actual work of typing stuff in or or finding things in the code is not the hard part. Can you answer that question maybe? Like, what's the big deal with tooling? Why why can't we all just use gedit or something like that? Uh, I would kind of agree about typing, uh, but not so much with uh, finding the code. Because usually when you are trying to implement some feature or trying to uh, fix some bug, you're spending most of the time understanding what the actual problem is. And you're trying to understand how to fit uh, the solution for that problem into the existing code base. So then when you are ready, you are just typing some stuff and that's it. So... Most of the time you are spending analyzing the code and uh, preparing to do the, the, the actual change. So that's why uh, tools are important because they help you to understand the existing code base. You can navigate, you can understand who's calling what and uh, see uh, what usages do you have and what things you can break and... Uh, so it's it's kind of related to that adage about how code is read a lot more than it's written. And and what yeah, you're saying is yeah. it's not about the like you type a character and then it fills in the rest of the five characters as much as helping you understand the context of the code. Yeah, yes, that's true. My impression is JavaScript projects have trended larger recently. There's just people doing more complex stuff in JavaScript, both on the server and the client. Do you think that that also makes a difference in maybe the popularity of some of the more IDE-like environments? Like, is it, I guess I'm kind of asking, do you feel like it's a better, you can make a better case for using WebStorm because projects are bigger now and there's more complexity to understand? Yes, yes. Because, for example, if you're coming to a new project and there's a large code base, it's kind of hard to read the code uh, without any, any supports, any suggestions, any hints. But that also makes our work harder because with bigger projects, uh, you have 
more more code that you need to parse, you need to analyze, you need to index and give the relevant variants, for example, for code completion. Interesting. Similar to the code completion, I'm also curious about the refactorings. I mean, there are standard refactorings for things like Java and .NET, but how do you come up with refactorings for JavaScript? Uh, basically, the framework is uh, the same. So what you have is some elements in your code. They do have some references. So, for example, if you are at the function call, the actual call is a reference to that function. So usually uh, what you need to do is to make sure that the function uh, navigation from that call is going to the right function. And uh, because we are working on the IntelliJ platform, that's it. So uh, if the uh, navigation works, usually the rename refactoring works too. There are some quirks because it's not always that trivial. Not all the elements have uh, actual representation in the in the program code, and you need to uh, somehow bypass that. I'm I'm just curious where you get the list from because I've seen books of refactorings for Java and stuff, and I just don't see them as often for Ruby or JavaScript. We are trying to make all the languages equal. So if there is a refactoring for a, for a Java and uh, it's relevant for another language, usually that's a good candidate for new refactoring if it's not Im- implemented. So one of the kind of double-edged sword things about JavaScript is it's a lot easier to do weird, super dynamic stuff. You can change prototypes or runtime. You can do all kinds of dynamic property lookup stuff. You can pass functions around as arguments. It seems like the lack of a compiler or a static type system could make it a lot harder to do those kinds of refactorings. But also, I mean, maybe it makes it easier to do other kinds of refactorings. So you said you're kind of trying to do the same, support the same refactorings across languages. How does that handle the dynamic nature of JavaScript? That's definitely making things harder. On the bright side, there's lots of things that we we try to understand. So, uh, for example, we are trying to understand the prototypes reassignment. We're trying to understand lots of frameworks uh, with some dynamic goals when the string argument is not actually just a string, but, for example, a new function method. Or uh, when you are passing some object, then that then became some other object. Most of the things are hard coded. We are trying to understand what the framework actually does and how can can we understand that. You also mentioned TypeScript a little bit, and I know one of the specific design goals of TypeScript, I believe, is to make it easier to write this kind of tooling and, and automated refactoring. And that's also the case with Flow from Facebook. Do you have any TypeScript-specific refactorings or Flow-specific refactorings to take advantage of the type system that those add? Uh, actually, we are taking advantage of the type system for TypeScript. It actually makes uh, all the all the stuff easier because it's like statically typed and uh, we're not supporting flow fully yet but we that's the thing that we're looking to do in 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 future cool so what's coming out in the next versions of webstorm uh, right now we have the early access program that adds uh, support for uh, some 
TypeScript 2 features. Also, there is an uh, experimental mode for, for a TypeScript language service. So you can uh, use the TypeScript f- uh, language service for syntax highlight, uh, not the syntax for the uh, highlighting and of the files to see the actual problems with the types. And uh, also we have the Angular CLI uh, built in the, for the project generation. Right now we are finishing the Angular UI router diagram, so you can see all the all the routings in a like, oh, wow. in, a, in a diagram. Yes, uh, right now it's for Angular UI router, but probably we would be doing that for a new router in in Angular too. That's actually really nice. I mean, it's it's interesting that you're building in the the language features, and I think those kind of have common appeal to anybody who's doing JavaScript. But it's also really nice to get some of those features that give you insights into your Angular apps, or you know, as you add others, maybe you add stuff for React or for yeah, yeah. Ember or whatever. That's, we, we, that's, actually, okay. we, we we do have some uh, improvements uh, for React. For for example, uh, in this version, we understand the React prop types. If you have the prop types on your component, you get the auto completion in the JSX code and the navigation. It's really interesting that you talk about the framework level support because that almost feels like uh, the kind of stuff you get with with the iOS tooling um, because. There just is like the one framework and it's all really tightly integrated with the editor. But doing it where there are all these different open source options seems like it's a lot trickier because they move a lot faster and there are just more things to cover. I guess you already talked about kind of the usage data that you get on frameworks and I'm sure that plays into deciding what to cover. But is is there anything else that goes into that? Like, do you look at maybe how fast things change and try and wait for things to settle down a little bit in frameworks before you add framework specific features or things like that? Uh, yes, we are not rushing to to do every framework right from the start because quite a lot of frameworks uh, come and go. The landscape is changing very frequently, so we're trying to wait a little bit to see what's what's getting adopted because. Uh, if you're rushing, usually you need to, to to throw out some of your code. So, for example, with the Angular 2, we are started with the ad script support. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. And it was thrown out like in two months. Yeah, that's interesting because that's the same kind of trade-off that I think just regular developers make, the ones that aren't building tooling but are building apps like these new frameworks are changing all the time. They're still iterating on their feature set. Do I really want to build a product in Angular 2 using AtScript or do I wait a couple of months to settle down? So it's it's interesting to see those same trade-offs occur uh, at a different level, I guess, in the editor space. Yeah, I mean, they did. They moved away from AtScript in favor of TypeScript. And well, yeah, what are all the implications of that for developers in the space of what tools do I use as well as how do I build the app that my client or boss wants? In that specific case, I think they were pretty clear that like this is super early days. This is what we're planning on doing. But I feel like they were more than clear that if you want to like go to prod with this, good luck. <laughs> and we might change anything at some point. But those same trade-offs exist for everybody, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of funny that we're speaking about Angular because usually they're doing some changes right before some milestones for us. So, for example, with the Angular 2 RC, they've changed the uh, packages layout. They changed uh, yeah, they, they, they changed the CLI. They've 
Yeah, the CLI wasn't the problem, but they changed the uh, actual Angular uh, NPM package layout, so they are uh, no longer bringing the source code for Angular with the package, and they do scope packages, and uh, they also changed uh, component declarations a little bit, and uh, that was right be- before the ng-conf. So that was super popular question at the ng-conf. Yeah. I've installed the RC and right now nothing is working for me. That's true. I'm also curious, there are other technologies that people generally use in conjunction with JavaScript, for example, HTML or CSS, and there are uh, frameworks for different uh, templating languages and CSS frameworks and things like that. How do you support all of that stuff? Because it seems like those are completely different from JavaScript and you would have to approach them in different ways. Basically, it's uh, the same thing. You're writing the lexer, you're writing the parser, and you're doing the refactorings. So we have uh, right now uh, parsers for, for HTML and we have parsers for CSS and uh, SAS, SCSS, less and uh couple of uh, templating languages. So if you're speaking about the WebStorm, that's uh, Jade, EGS, and uh, Handlebars, yeah. Spacebars for Meteor, and yeah. Have you found that there are certain ways that people are writing JavaScript or approaching JavaScript that are less optimal for WebStorm? Uh, we are fighting them all the time. So usually we, we, we make some assumptions. We have some examples. We are looking at the source code and we see like people are using this pattern of mm-hmm. doing things. We are writing support to that kind of thing. And at some point somebody come, comes and says, Oh, I'm not using the, that pattern. I'm using the whole different pattern and uh, nothing is working here. And please help me. Okay, we should un- understand this thing, and people are very, very creative in uh, in the that ways. That is such a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, in the ways they're they're writing their code. I can like hear you trying to say that respectfully. <laughs> they do uh, it wrong in so many interesting ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's tempting to just say like, "Well, don't write your code like that" to the users a lot of times, and it must be tricky to balance. I mean. That's what your product is, is to help them write code, but I'm sure people can do some Yeah, so sometimes we're saying, so here's uh, the way we're understanding, and here's a workaround for you, how to make WebStorm smart with your code, and we are adding some, some support for your cases, for your cases a little bit later. Do you build in support for other parts of the infrastructure, like databases or front-end storage or anything like that? Not our team, but there's a team who are doing the uh, database database support. And for example, in RubyMind, the database support is built in and uh, automatically configured based on the database YAML. So you can see your database just after you open the your Rails project. One other question I have is uh, you've been working, you said, for JetBrains for eight years, which is like... 8 million years in developer years. Yeah, that's true. So I'm curious, what is it about this particular set of problems or this particular uh, company that really gets you excited and gets you up in the morning? It's actually that's that's people, that's our users. Because uh, 
I like to do things that are useful for quite a lot of people. And, uh, you know, that's a start, probably startup thing, scratch your own itch. But as a developers, we are feeling the problems that developers have. And uh, that's why we can make their life easier. And uh, that's kind of thing that makes it interesting for me. Cool. Uh, I don't know if I have any other questions. Do you, Jameson? I don't think so. I mean, is there anything that we should have talked about with WebStorm that we haven't? Any things you want to explain about or any questions we should have asked that we haven't? If you're interested, I can uh, speak about our new release cycle and uh, new changes in the release procedures. I don't know if, if, that if that's be, useful. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, okay, so uh, this year we switched uh, from uh, doing releases uh, now and then to doing more centralized thing and to doing the simultaneous releases for all projects and uh, products. And we are doing them for three times a year instead of two like we did uh, the year before. So that helps us to deliver the release quality product more often because quite a lot of people are not really ready to use the EAP versions. And, uh, and it kind of helps us to and users to understand which features are available in which version. So we had a lot of confusion uh, when we are fixing some bugs or adding some new feature and uh, we're closing it in, from, in a WebStorm project, for example. And here comes some PHP Storm user and asks, when I get this feature and we are, oh, you are going to get that sometime later or uh, you already have that or lots of different stories. And it brought a lot of confusion for, for us and for users. And right now uh, we are having the uh, same version number. So if you are on the same version, you're getting all the, all the features from the other subsystems. And I've mentioned the EAP, and I believe not everyone is familiar. Uh, it stands for Early Access Program. Usually a couple of months before the release of the version, we are starting the uh, Early Access Program, and it's uh, fully functional builds with the new features and new bug fixes that are available for free. And we are releasing them once in a week. So if you want to be on the bleeding edge and try uh, new framework support or new language features, you can download the EAP and, uh, and use it here. Yeah. Uh, another thing uh, that I can talk about is that recently uh, we started contributing to the, to the Java source code. Because as you know, the Apple stopped releasing the Java for OS 6. And in order to migrate to the newer versions and to keep people safe, so they won't need to install that legacy Java version, we wanted to switch to the uh, Java 8 from, from Oracle. Uh, but we've got quite a lot of problems with that because, first of all, the font rendering was really terrible and people were very, were very annoyed about that. So we decided that it's core to our product to, to have the, this functionality running. So right now we are, uh, working very actively on the, on the Java source code 
and there's about five or six people uh, who are working on that, and we are contributing back to the Java source. That's cool, and I, I love seeing companies that are out there, you know, doing things and making money as well as contributing to the community at large, find ways to make the tools better for everybody, including themselves. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not a Java user, but I feel like as the programming ecosystem gets better because of contributions like this, we all... This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Wrangle.io. Wrangle's been working with Angular 2 for a long time. And they are now putting together an eight-hour, two-day course designed to help Angular developers learn how to write apps in Angular 2. If you're looking to level up your JavaScript and Angular 2 skills, then go to wrangle.io training and click on the link for Angular 2 training. If you're looking for other training in React or JavaScript, they also have that available at wrangle.io training. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh! Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to try debugging issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install, and you can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. We have a special offer for JavaScript Jabber listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber and sign up to get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked for free. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 223 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, quickly shouting out about reactremoteconf.com and angularremoteconf.com. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that is Dennis Ushakov. I hope I said that somewhat close to accurately. Yes, that's close. Hi, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yes, uh, I'm working at JetBrains as a team lead for uh, WebStorm and RubyMine teams. 
Uh, I've been working at JetBrains for almost eight years. And uh, I usually say that my work at JetBrains is to make the release process converge. Awesome. Yeah, we met at NGConf and yes. had a little chat there. And uh, yeah, I was really interested to just find out like what goes into WebStorm and uh, yeah, how all that gets released and things like that. One thing that I think is interesting just to kind of get us started is that WebStorm, among other things, is written in Java, if I remember right. Yes, that's true. So what's it like writing an IDE for JavaScript in Java? Actually, we've been writing Java IDE in Java for quite a long time. So IntelliJ makes writing Java code less painful than like other IDEs or uh, even text editors. Uh, so, yeah, but we are not very proficient in JavaScript usually. So what we do is read specs a lot and we have uh, different dog footing projects. And also we have a front-end team who are doing the our web-based tools such as Utrack, TeamCity, uh, who give us really, really good feedback. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So when you say you look at the specs, are you looking at the ECMAScript 5 and ECMAScript 6 or ECM ES 2015? Are you looking at those? And are you implementing the upcoming versions of JavaScript or is it just the kind of the current implemented spec? Uh, we are following the upcoming specs. So there are things that are not on the official spec that are already working. And we are trying to keep up with the new stuff. Because uh, if, uh, when you uh, do things, uh, uh, I don't know, if it's right to say reactive way, when spec is getting released and then you're pushing the features, it's usually too late in the JavaScript world because Babel supports all the things and with some extensions and uh, lots of people are already using new stuff. So I have, a, I have a couple kind of background questions. Yeah. One is, can you just kind of define what WebStorm is for people that might not have used it? Yes, sure. WebStorm is a JavaScript IDE, and IDE stands for Integrated Devel Development Environment. Uh, so basically, it's a text editor uh, with the advanced code inside, such as uh, completion, navigation, refactorings, plus integration with the different tools, uh, such as debuggers or linters or build tools and stuff like that. And then you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I often hear about this dichotomy between an IDE and a text editor. And, and WebStorm, in my mind, is definitely on the far end of the IDE spectrum. It's, it's kind of a choice that you've made pretty deliberately. Can you talk about that difference? Like what makes up an IDE versus what makes up a text editor? Basically, we are uh, okay living with the text editors. And uh, what are the benefits of using text editor is that it's uh, usually faster and simpler. Uh, but so this is stuff like Vim or... Yeah, yeah, for example. Vim Sublime or, or, I don't know, things like that. Yes, but it doesn't have uh, lots of functionality. So, for example, you cannot refactor, or uh, with some plugins you can refactor, but you need to configure them manually. And uh, it's usually a little bit harder than in IDE, where you have all everything baked in. 
Another thing is that uh, you have uh, some tools integrated. So, for example, if you are doing something in the text editor, usually you need to switch to the terminal to do, I don't know, to, to launch a build tool or stuff like that. Or uh, you need to switch to the browser to do the debugging. And uh, in IDE, you just get the debugger right where your code is and uh, you get all the tools built in. Yeah, I, I would have to say, I mean, I use Emacs a lot and then occasionally I'll pull out uh, RubyMine or WebStorm. And yeah, my experience is, is that if I don't want to do any of the setup, IDEs are really nice. But for something like Emacs in particular, I actually have to go out of my way to make sure that the environment is set up so that it does all the stuff that the IDEs sort of do naturally. That's true. Uh, there's also another way that I believe quite a lot of people are using when they need to do some quick fixes like edit a line or two, they are opening the text editor because it's usually faster. But uh, when they need to do some refactoring, they are pulling out an ID to get all the difficult stuff done. I can kind of see that. One thing that I'm curious about is that a lot of the tools that I find I wind up using for JavaScript for building and things like that are all written in JavaScript. So when you're building an IDE for JavaScript, do you wind up just hooking into those tools when you provide those services? So there's a JavaScript runtime that you're talking to from the Java built IDE, or do you actually build that in Java and make it a part of the IDE? There are different approaches, so we are using kind of both of them. Uh, so with some tools, uh, it's enough to just launch the tool, grab the output, and that's fine. Uh, with some tools, you need to talk using some protocol. Uh, for example, that's what we are doing right now in the early access versions. We are building in the uh, TypeScript uh, language service and we are talking using the Microsoft protocol to get all the highlighting for, for the TypeScript. And sometimes we, we just do things ourselves. So for example, for JavaScript, we have our own code inside engine that parses the JavaScript, infers the types and tries to provide the completion navigation and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit more about the technical kind of architecture and, and things that go into building an IDE? To me, it seems kind of magical and mysterious. I don't know anything about how they work under the hood. Like there's the whole text editing part, but then there's all this other stuff that you've mentioned, like talking to external frameworks or libraries and doing JavaScript parsing and like what, what all is involved in the technical aspects of the IDE? Yeah, it's funny because usually that's what I'm saying at the interviews uh, when I'm interviewing new people and I'm saying what the kind of work they're going to do here. So there are two kinds of integrations. Uh, the first one is language support and the second one is external tool support. So we kind of covered a little bit the external tools. Uh, you just launch, you grab the output, you're trying to provide some useful useful actions for uh, simplified launching or getting some navigation from the output or some information from the output. Like, for example, if you're launching the test framework, you provide the formatter, you grab the output, and then you can provide a nice-looking tree uh, with the test lists and showing which are failing and which are okay and navigation from that tree. As for uh, language support, everything starts with uh, with a lexer. To provide some basic highlighting, you need to write your own lexer. We are using the JFlex for that. And uh, 
Luxor is just the thing that splits the like input stream of file into the tokens that are getting highlighted after that. So if you want just the highlighting, you can stop at the Luxor. At the Luxor. After that, if you want to do some refactorings and stuff like that, first thing that you need to do is to get the token stream converted into the actual tree structure. That's uh, what usually called the AST, uh, an abstract syntax tree. And the parser goes through the stream of lexers and it tries to combine them into the nodes which represent some objects. So, for example, if you have a function declaration, you get the couple of tokens, for example, one for a, for a function keyword, the second for a, for a brace, and one more, and then for curlies. And actually, that would be one big node that's called function, and uh, inside would be arguments list, and there would be a body, and there would be statements and stuff like that. Usually the AST is uh, like the node, and it has the type. What we do is we have a thing that's called PSI, Program Structure Interface. It's uh, basically an object-oriented AST. So usually you are going through nodes and you're asking node which type it has and doing something on top of that and decide something based on the type of node. With PSI, every node is just an object and you can ask something like function, give me a name. So it sounds like from the work you're describing, it, it sounds a lot like what the actual compiler or VM yes, or engine would do itself. Yes, that's true. Um, are, are you able to reuse, I, I know you do this for a bunch of different languages, but especially for JavaScript, there's a ton of tooling around parsing JavaScript in JavaScript or in other languages. Are you able to reuse any of that or even any of the code from any of the VMs? Or is it really just implementing everything from scratch yourselves? Actually, we started doing the JavaScript parsing very, very long ago uh, when there were almost no such tools and it was kind of hard to do actual parsing. Mm -hmm. uh, so for JavaScript, we are doing everything from scratch and for most languages, that's what we do. So we usually look at specs, as I said at the beginning, and uh, we look at the actual compilers or VEMs code, because, for example, for uh, Ruby, there is no actual spec. Sure. Uh, and that's what we do. We, we are looking at the Ruby source code, and we are trying to understand how it really parses the input file. So it sounds like you feel like you need to kind of do it all yourself because often you're building it ahead of usable tooling almost from, from other people. Like you, you want the highlighting for the new features before having to wait for some open source library to parse the new feature correctly or something. Yes, that's true. And uh, the other problem that we actually need to do that fast and uh, we need to do that in some incremental way and not all the libraries and not all the compilers can do that in, in that way. Okay, that kind of makes sense. So uh, we uh, we used to write parsers uh, manually using the recursive parsing, uh, but recently we we did our own thing that's called Grammar Kit that allows you to provide the BNF and uh, then generate parser. One thing that I'm curious about, you know, you talked about having to implement some of these features on your own in JavaScript because nobody's done it. It's 
kind of in limbo because the spec hasn't been adopted yet. How do you decide which ones you're going to build first? That's a really, really good question. First of all, we, we have our uh, bug tracker and our bug tracker is uh, open. So everyone can contribute, everyone can comment on issues and uh, vote for issues. So we are uh, trying to see what uh, people are actually using and what people are asking us to do. And we are paying attention to the votes. We are uh, also uh, trying to uh, look at the trends uh, in the community and articles and uh, GitHub repositories. And uh, if we're speaking about frameworks, we can see the, the popularity of the frameworks. And we also have our own research team. We can ask them questions. So to do some research and uh they actually uh, built a pretty good tool recently that gathers the stuff from the Stack Overflow questions and from GitHub and from oh, wow. Google Trends. And basically, you can see which frameworks are getting popular and uh, which are That's not. That's a really cool idea. So someone yeah, is, so, is crawling and parsing all that to try and yeah, make decisions yeah. about what to implement. That's really cool. Uh, the only thing that's missing, but I think they will add it uh, sometime, is the NPM stats. So we are checking the NPM stats menu right now, but I guess we can add them there. Is that data set or tool open? Like, is that something that other people could use or is that an internal thing? Uh, it's kind of internal thing. Uh, I don't know uh, if it's really production ready and ready for... Sure. It just sounds like it could be really fascinating. So I have, I guess, kind of a broader question, which I I hear sometimes from people. It it seems like it applies to any kind of text editor IDE setup that you spend a lot of time customizing and tweaking, which is why is that tooling important? Like the, the bottleneck for most programming seems like it's in your brain. And the actual work of typing stuff in or, or finding things in the code is not the hard part. Can you answer that question maybe? Like, what's the big deal with tooling? Why why can't we all just use gedit or something like that? Uh, I would kind of agree about typing, uh, but not so much with uh, finding the code. Because usually when you're trying to implement some feature or trying to uh, fix some bug, you're spending most of the time understanding what the actual problem is. And you're trying to understand how to fit uh, the solution for that problem into the existing code base. So then when you are ready, you're just typing some stuff and that's it. So... Most of the time, you are spending analyzing the code and uh, preparing to do the, the the actual change. So that's why uh, tools are important because they help you to understand the existing code base. You can navigate. You can understand who's calling what and uh, see uh, what usages do you have and what things you can break and. Uh, so it's it's kind of related to that adage about how code is read a lot more than it's written. And and what yeah, you're saying is yeah. it's not about the like you type a character and then it fills in the rest of the five characters as much as helping you understand the context of the code. Yeah, yes, that's true. My impression is JavaScript projects have trended larger recently. There's just people doing more complex stuff in JavaScript, both on the server and the client. 
Do you think that that also makes a difference in maybe the popularity of some of the more IDE like environments? Like, is it, I guess I'm kind of asking, do you feel like it's a better, you can make a better case for using WebStorm because projects are bigger now and there's more complexity to understand? Yes, yes. Because, for example, if you're coming to a new project and there's a large code base, it's kind of hard to read the code uh, without any, any supports, any suggestions, any hints. But that also makes our work harder because with bigger projects, uh, you have more, more code that you need to parse, you need to analyze, you need to index and give the relevant variants, for example, for code completion. Interesting. Similar to the code completion, I'm also curious about the refactorings. I mean, there are standard refactorings for things like Java and .NET, but how do you come up with refactorings for JavaScript? Uh, basically the framework is, uh, the same. So what you have is some elements in your code. They do have some references. So for example, if you are at the function call, the actual call is a reference to that function. So usually, uh, what you need to do is to make sure that the function, uh, navigation from that call is going to the right function. And, uh, because we are working on the IntelliJ platform, that's it. So, uh, if the uh, navigation works, usually the rename refactoring works too. There are some quirks because it's not always that trivial. Not all the elements have uh, actual representation in the, in the program code and you need to, uh, somehow bypass that. I'm I'm just curious where you get the list from because I've seen books of refactorings for Java and stuff, and I just don't see them as often for Ruby or JavaScript. We are trying to make all the languages equal. So if there is a refactoring for a, for a Java and uh, it's relevant for another language, usually that's a good candidate for a new refactoring if it's not Im- implemented. So one of the kind of double-edged sword things about JavaScript is it's a lot easier to do weird, super dynamic stuff. You can change prototypes or runtime. You can do all kinds of dynamic property lookup stuff. You can pass functions around as arguments. It seems like the lack of a compiler or a static type system could make it a lot harder to do those kinds of refactorings. But also, I mean, maybe it makes it easier to do other kinds of refactorings. So you said you're kind of trying to do the same, support the same refactorings across languages. How does that handle the dynamic nature of JavaScript? That's definitely making things harder. On the bright side, there's lots of things that we we try to understand. So, uh, for example, we are trying to understand the prototypes reassignment. We are trying to understand lots of frameworks uh, with some dynamic goals when the string argument is not actually just a string, but, for example, a new function method. Or uh, when you are passing some object then that then became some other object. Most of the things are hard-coded. We are trying to understand what the framework actually does and how can can we understand that. You also mentioned TypeScript a little bit. And I know one of the specific design goals of TypeScript, I believe, is to make it easier to write this kind of tooling and, and automated refactoring. And that's also the case with 
flow from Facebook. Do you have any TypeScript specific refactorings or flow specific refactorings to take advantage of the type system that those add? Uh, actually, we are taking advantage of the type system for TypeScript. It actually makes uh, all the all the stuff easier because it's like statically typed and. Uh, we are not supporting flow fully yet, but we, that's the thing that we are looking to do in, in, in future. Cool. So what's coming out in the next versions of WebStorm? Uh, right now we have the early access program that adds, uh, support for, uh, some TypeScript 2 features. Also, there is an uh, experimental mode for, for a TypeScript language service. So you can, uh, use the TypeScript, f- uh, language service for syntax highlight, uh, not the syntax for the, uh, highlighting and of the files to see the actual problems with the types. And, uh, also we have the Angular CLI, uh, built in the, for the project generation. Right now we are finishing the Angular UI router diagram, so you can see all the all the routings in a like, oh, wow. in, a, in a diagram. Yes, uh, right now it's for Angular UI router, but probably we would be doing that for a new router in in Angular too. That's actually really nice. I mean, it's it's interesting that you're building in the the language features, and I think those kind of have common appeal to anybody who's doing JavaScript. But it's also really nice to get some of those features that give you insights into your Angular apps, or you know, as you add others, maybe you add stuff for React or for yeah, yeah. Ember or whatever. That's, we, we, that's, actually, okay. we 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 do have some uh, improvements uh, for React. For for example, uh, in this version, we understand the React prop types. If you have the prop types on your component, you get the auto completion in the JSX code and the navigation. It's really interesting that you talk about the framework level support because that almost feels like uh, the kind of stuff you get with with the iOS tooling um, because. There just is like the one framework and it's all really tightly integrated with the editor. But doing it where there are all these different open source options seems like it's a lot trickier because they move a lot faster and there are just more things to cover. I guess you already talked about kind of the usage data that you get on frameworks and I'm sure that plays into deciding what to cover. But is is there anything else that goes into that? Like, do you look at maybe how fast things change and try and wait for things to settle down a little bit in frameworks before you add framework specific features or things like that? Uh, yes, we are not rushing to to do every framework right from the start because quite a lot of frameworks uh, come and go. The landscape is changing very frequently, so we're trying to wait a little bit to see what's what's getting adopted because. Uh, if you're rushing, usually you need to, to, to throw out some of your code. So for example, with the Angular 2, we are started with the ad script support. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was thrown out like in two months. Yeah. That's interesting because that's the same kind of trade off that I think just regular developers make, the ones that aren't building tooling, but are building apps like, these new frameworks are changing all the time. They're still iterating on their feature set. Do I really want to build a product in Angular 2 using at scripts or do I wait a couple of months to settle down? So it's it's interesting to see those same trade-offs occur uh, at a different level, I guess, in the editor space. Yeah, I mean, they did. They moved away from at script in favor of TypeScript. And well, yeah, what are all the implications of that for developers in the space of what tools do I use as well as how do I build the app that my client or boss wants? 
in that specific case, I think they were pretty clear that like, this is super early days. This is what we're planning on doing. But I feel like they were more than clear that if you want to like go to prod with this, good luck. <laughs> and we might change anything at some point. But those same trade-offs exist for everybody, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of funny that we're speaking about Angular because usually they're doing some changes right before some milestones for us. So for example, with the Angular 2 RC, they've changed the uh, packages layout. They changed, uh, yeah, they, they changed the CLI. They've yeah, the CLI wasn't the problem, but they changed the uh, actual Angular uh, NPM package layout. So they are uh, no longer bringing the source code for Angular with the package. And they do scope packages. And uh, they also changed uh, component declarations a little bit. And uh, that was right be before the ng-conf. So that was super popular question at the ng-conf. Yeah. I've installed the RC and... Right now, nothing is working for me. That's true. I'm also curious, there are other technologies that people generally use in conjunction with JavaScript, for example, HTML or CSS, and there are uh, frameworks for different uh, templating languages and CSS frameworks and things like that. How do you support all of that stuff? Because it seems like those are completely different from JavaScript and you would have to approach them in different ways. Basically, it's uh, the same thing. You're writing the lexer, you're writing the parser, and you're doing the refactorings. So we have uh, right now uh, parsers for, for HTML, and we have parsers for CSS and uh, SAS, SCSS, less, and a uh, couple of uh, templating languages. So if you're speaking about the WebStorm, that's uh, Jade, EGS and uh, handlebars, yeah. uh, spacebars for Meteor, and yeah. Have you found that there are certain ways that people are writing JavaScript or approaching JavaScript that are less optimal for WebStorm? Uh, we are fighting them all the time. So usually we, we, we make some assumptions. We have some examples. We are looking at the source code and we see like people are using this pattern of mm -hmm. doing things. We are writing support to that kind of thing. And at some point somebody come, comes and says, Oh, I'm not using the, that pattern. I'm using the whole different pattern and uh, nothing is working here. And please help me. Okay, we should un understand this thing, and people are very, very creative in uh, in the that ways. That is such a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, in the ways they're they're writing their code. I can like hear you trying to say that respectfully. <laughs> they do uh, it wrong in so many interesting ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's tempting to just say like, "Well, don't write your code like that" to the users a lot of times, and it must be tricky to balance. I mean. That's what your product is, is to help them write code, but I'm sure people can do yeah, so the job. Sometimes we're saying, so here's uh, the way we're understanding, and here's a workaround for you, how to make WebStorm smart with your code, and we are adding some, some support for your cases, for your cases a little bit later. Do you build in support for other parts of the infrastructure, like databases or front-end storage or anything like that? Not our team, but there's a team who are doing the uh, database database support. And for example, in RubyMind, the database support is built in and uh, 
automatically configured based on the database YAML. So you can see your database just after you open the your Rails project. One other question I have is uh, you've been working, you said, for JetBrains for eight years, which is like eight million years in developer years. Yeah, that's true. So I'm curious, what is it about this particular set of problems or this particular uh, company that really gets you excited and gets you up in the morning? It's actually that's that's people, that's our users, because uh, I like to do things that are useful for quite a lot of people. And, uh, you know, that's uh, start probably startup thing, scratch your own itch. But as a developers, we are feeling the problems that developers have. And uh, that's why we can make their life easier. And uh, that's kind of thing that makes it interesting for me. Cool. Uh, I don't know if I have any other questions. Do you, Jameson? I don't think so. I mean, is there anything that we should have talked about with WebStorm that we haven't? Any things you want to explain about or any questions we should have asked that we haven't? If you're interested, I can uh, speak about our new release cycle and uh, new changes in the release procedures. I don't know if, if, yeah, that if that's be, useful. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, okay, so uh, this year we switched uh, from uh, doing releases uh, now and then to doing more centralized thing and to doing the simultaneous releases for all projects and uh, products. And we are doing them for three times a year instead of two like we did uh, the year before. So that helps us to deliver the release quality product more often because quite a lot of people are not really ready to use the EAP versions. And, uh, and it kind of helps us to and users to understand which features are available in which version. So we had a lot of confusion uh, when we are fixing some bugs or adding some new feature and uh, we're closing it in, in a WebStorm project, for example. And here comes some PHP Storm user and asks, when I get this feature and we are, oh, you are going to get that sometime later or uh, you already have that or lots of different stories. And it brought a lot of confusion for, for us and for users. And right now uh, we are having the uh, same version number. So if you are on the same version, you're getting all the, all the features from the other subsystems. And I've mentioned the EAP, and I believe not everyone is familiar. Uh, it stands for Early Access Program. Usually a couple of months before the release of the version, we are starting the uh, Early Access Program, and it's uh, fully functional builds with the new features and new bug fixes that are available for free. And we are releasing them once in a week. So if you want to be on the bleeding edge and try uh, new framework support or new language features, you can download the EAP and uh, and use it here. Yeah. Uh, another thing uh, that I can talk about is that recently uh, we started contributing to the to the Java source code. Because as you know, the Apple stopped releasing the Java for OS 6. And in order to migrate to the newer versions and to keep 
people safe, so they won't need to install that legacy Java version. We wanted to switch to the uh, Java 8 from, from Oracle, uh, but we, we've got quite a lot of problems with that because, first of all, the font rendering was really terrible and people were very, were very annoyed about that. So we decided that it's core to our product to, to have the, this functionality running. So right now we are, uh, working very actively on the, on the Java source code. And there's about five or six people uh, who are working on that. And we are contributing back to the Java source. That's cool. And I, I love seeing companies that are out there, you know, doing things and, making money as well as contributing to the community at large, find ways to make the tools better for everybody, including themselves. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not a Java user, but I feel like as the programming ecosystem gets better because of contributions like this, we all benefit. So, you know, just, just props, I guess, for, for being involved in that. Thank you. Actually, that Java is not only thing that we are working on. For example, there is a Karma contributor on our front-end team and, uh, or no, there is Karma committer on our front-end team and there is a Karma contributor on the Webstream team. I'm maintaining the um, Ruby debug IDE and all the debug gems uh, for other IDEs. And uh, there's a Actually, very funny story because PyCharm team is sponsoring the guy uh, who is doing the debugger for PyDF, I believe. And also we have our open source uh, language that's called Kotlin that we believe should be better than Java. And uh, also the platform uh, code is uh, open source. So, for example, the Android Studio is built on top of IntelliJ platform on top of the open source part. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, I don't think I have anything else that we should go into, so let's go ahead and get to the picks. Uh, Jameson, do you have some picks for us? I have picks for you. The first one is a it's a write-up of a talk called Human Scale Technology, and it's about, um, I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff on this theme lately, about the ability for technology to have wider implications than just building a product that solves some problem. And uh, this talk specifically is about how um, technology can be humane or it can be inhumane. And it can be inhumane in ways that are actively harmful. Like you build a thing that is like a weapon or something. It can be accidentally inhumane, which means it's just a confusing and and kind of a cruddy product that makes people's lives worse when they use it. Uh, or it can be um, kind of passive, but able to be used in an inhumane way and stuff like, I don't know, maybe some of the cookie tracking things or ad network things that can be used for surveillance. Or uh, that, um, that falls X-ray into that thing. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, where it's it's just a tool, but people can maybe abuse it. And, and it talks about how because software is becoming more and more common, the responsibility that people who create it have to think about the ways it could be misused or, or make people's lives worse kind of grows. It just made me think a lot. So that's one of my picks. My other pick is a little bit, I don't know, more selfish, I guess. It's just the React Rally Conference. This is a conference that um, a friend and I put on in Salt Lake City. We bring a lot of the kind of core React community members and then lots of other voices that you don't hear from as much at the React conferences to Salt Lake. It's August 25th and 26th, and it should be a really good time. Tickets are on sale, so you could go to reactrally.com and, and pick up a ticket, and I would love to see you there. Those are my picks. 
Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is, is today is the primary election here in Utah. And I'm assuming that there are similar things happening in other parts of the country and world. So if you have a chance to go and be involved in choosing the people who represent you and help maintain the government wherever you're at, then I highly recommend that people do that. I think it's very important. The other thing that I'm going to pick is a tool that I use to access the FTP server where I push stuff up to the CDN for the podcast, among other things, and that I use for some other things like accessing Amazon's S3. It's a tool called Transmit, and it's just a really, really nice client for that sort of thing. And so I'm definitely going to shout out about that because I think it's awesome and I just like having nice tools for doing things that I have to do every day. And those are my picks. Dennis, do you have some picks for us? Yes. Uh, my first pick would be uh, Steam Squad. That's the war game, the computer war game uh, in alternative universe. Uh, it's uh, World War One in uh, steampunk setting. Uh, that my friends are doing this game, and they are somewhere close to their release. And I've been playing this thing from the very beginning, and I find it very interesting. And I've uh, never heard of this. I play a lot of video games, so I, I feel like I've heard of basically everything. But it, this is new to me. Cool. They have really, really small team, and uh, they are not very popular, I think, yet. I hope. Yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my second pick uh, would be the Ergo Baby uh, Baby Carrier. I've got a Sunborn in January, and uh, I really enjoy this thing and really love carrying my son. So that's it. Very cool. If people want to know more about WebStorm or about what you're working on, what should they do? Where do they go? They can go to the WebStorm Twitter or to my personal Twitter, and I will be happy to answer questions. In uh, our PMM, uh, Katya would be also very happy to answer the question. Uh, if they have some uh, feature requests, they are very welcome in our issue tracker. And you can also meet us at the upcoming conferences. Uh, we will be going to the Angular Connect, for example. Cool. Well, thank you for coming, Dennis. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Well, we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.